Man, we are in the book of Hebrews, continuing our study through um, the book of Hebrews this morning. So we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. This morning is what we're going to be looking at. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's towards the back of the New Testament. If you need to use your index, feel free to do so to find that. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 4 through 14. This morning we're going to talk about Christ's supremacy over angels. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14 really deal with uh, the author of Hebrews is laying out for us that Christ is superior uh, to the angels in these verses. I think you'll see that as we read this passage of Scripture. I'm going to be reading. From the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And they, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I don't know if you've noticed or not, but... Angels are kind of a trend today. If you uh, go to a bookstore, uh, you will find all kinds of books and jewelry and trinkets and little things all about angels. We have bumper, bumper stickers that say things like, don't drive faster than your guardian angel. And we say weird things sometimes, like if someone passes away, if someone dies, um, and, and we, we say things like, well, heaven gained another angel, which, by the way, people don't become angels, just so we're clear on that. It seems that we're fascinated with angels. The media is fascinated with angels as well. Back in the 90s, we had a television show called Touched by an Angel. Maybe you used to watch it. In the show, viewers would wa uh, watch as angels served people, and they were kind of like um, heavenly psychologists um, in the show. They would give their message of love, and it always seemed that their message was that God was non-judgmental, and God embraced everyone at all times, no matter what. Sometimes we see angels portrayed as chubby little children on clouds, and they have little harps that they, that they play. Seems rarely do we ever have a biblical representation of angels. Angels in scripture have never been advocates of some morally loose, tolerant deity or God who rests in the sky telling everyone that everything's just going to be okay. We don't find that in scripture Anywhere Today, angels appeal to people because angels are portrayed as these heavenly beings that offer some, someone success or they give people blessings without ever having to deal with God himself. 
Now, I don't believe that we should be frivolous when it comes to angels. I don't think that we should act like they don't exist because clearly angels do exist. In fact, scripture makes it clear they do. The prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple and he saw hovering above him two seraphim, which means burning ones. They were angels. They were equipped with three pair of wings. Two fire wings covered their faces. Two wrapped their feet and two glowing pinions um, and uh, pinions of death were in the air. And they cried out, holy, holy, holy. Kind of like we sang this morning angels can be awesome they're magnificent and they're glorious and and they were beings that were created by god they are mentioned over 100 times in the old testament and more than 160 times in the new testament they exist um, in vast numbers in fact in the book of revelation it talks about angels numbering in the thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand that's a lot of angels in most cases, they're invisible, but there are times when they are visible and they can even have a human-like appearance and they have four functions specifically. One uh, of their functions is to praise and worship God. Two, they communicate God's message to man. Three, they minister to believers. Four, they will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, with all that said... Why did the author of the book of Hebrews write this information about angels? Well, very plainly because we should place angels in their proper place when it comes to our devotion. In other words, we should not be praying to angels. We should not be worshiping angels and we should not, they should not be the focus of our affection some of the people of the day when hebrews was written were in danger of compromising the superiority of jesus christ because they were elevating angels probably because the angels were seen as giving the old testament law according to hebrews 2 2 and acts 7 53 so what we have going on is is a lowering of jesus just slightly below God in angels. And so it was, it was like you had God and then you had angels and then they put Jesus right below the angels. And that's to undermine the deity of Christ. And that very thing, just so we're not confused, that very thing goes on today as well. For example, Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus was a God. He was a God. They may even say that he was a mighty God. But they will not say that he was God Almighty. They, in fact, teach that Jesus was created as the archangel Michael and that through him all other things in the universe were created. And so people, they, they hear that and they think, oh, well, that sounds legitimate. They're saying they have a high view of Jesus that, Jesus, that everything was created through Jesus, which is what we believe. That's what Christians believe. Modern Christianity believes that everything was created through Jesus. So that seems like a high view of who Jesus is. But they deny the fact that Jesus was truly God in the flesh. This is nothing new. Satan uses the same trick over and over again to deceive people over and over and over again. And if that trick gets old, he kind of puts it away and then he brings it out after a while when people forget about it. This is what he does with wrong views of angels in relation to who Jesus is. When this was written, when the Hebrews was written, the people were tempted to elevate the angels to a position that surpassed that of Jesus. And today we see that same trick being used over and over again by Satan. This is why Paul gave a warning against angel worship in Colossians chapter 2. And so the author of Hebrews sets out to prove that Jesus is superior to Judaism of the day. And in order to do so, he's going to have to prove that Jesus is superior to Moses. And he's going to have to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he has to show them that Jesus becoming a man does not place him below the angels, but that Jesus created the angels. 
And the proof is that Jesus is superior to the angels because Jesus is God. He will use the Old Testament to prove it. So that's what we want to look at this morning. What, how does the author of Hebrews use the Old Testament, which is what he's doing, to prove that Jesus is God and superior to the angels? So first, we see that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is God's son. That's the first thing that we see. Because Jesus is God's son. Let's first look at verse 4 where it states that Jesus is much superior to the angels as his name he inherited is more excellent than their name. Well, what's in a name? Well, for the Hebrews, everything was in the name. It signified the character of a person. And in this case, Jesus. And so it's a reference to Jesus. And it is speaking of his name or specifically a title. And that title is the title of son. This does not mean that his name was not not son or his title was not son before his exaltation. It has always been his name. Therefore, Jesus always was superior to the angels. The statement uh, here, as we look at it, um, is having become as much superior to the angels. He says, is having become much superior to the angels. That statement is a reference to what Jesus accomplished through his incarnation. His death on the cross for our sins. His resurrection. And finally, his ascension into glory. Now, like we just said, the name that is being referred to is that of Son. And more specifically, it's the name Son of God. To be clear, angels and believers have both been called sons of God, but never has a single angel or a single believer ever been called the son of God because that title belongs to Jesus alone. And it's a symbol of his deity. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't just kind of throw that out there and say, well, look, Jesus is the son of God and, and leave it at that. But instead, he backs up his claim. Jesus is the son of God and he quotes what's known as a messianic psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is the quote. And the quote is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that phrase is preceded by, by this. If we were to go back to Psalm and look it up, uh, when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it's preceded by this phrase, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and the reason for that is the decree took place before creation, in eternity, before the church ever affirmed the eternal sonship of Christ, before the Nicene Creed ever said that he is the eternally begotten by the Father, not made. In other words, the author of Hebrews is making it clear that since God exists in eternity, begetting is not an event. He's not saying, I beget you as it's an event, but it's not a place in time, but rather begetting is a description of an eternal relationship between the first and the second members of the Godhead. It's not I created you, I beget you, but it's a relationship. Jesus is eternally son of God. He did not become the son of God at his incarnation. The father and the son always have and will always relate to one another as father and son. God the father and Jesus the Son share the same nature. But God the Father does not predate the existence of God the Son. Because they are both eternally God. And I know we can't wrap our mind around that. We say, well, how in the world does Father and Son exist in eternity? I don't know. They just do. Because that's what Scripture clearly teaches us. God the Father, God the Son. Now someone would say, then why does that verse say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If he is the eternal son of God. Well, we should always use scripture to interpret scripture. And the apostle Paul preached that Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. And was proving to him, proving that he was God's son. I like what the commentator F.F. Bruce says when he speaks of today. He says that word today relates to the exaltation 
and enthronement of Christ, which is an emphasis throughout Hebrews. He explains that this does not in any way question the eternal sonship of Christ. Rather, he says, he who was the son of God from everlasting entered into the full exercise of all the prerogatives implied by his sonship when all his suffering had proved the completeness of his obedience. He was raised to the father's right hand. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there either. He doesn't just quote the psalm in uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and stop. He also quotes from 2 Samuel 7, where God had promised David that God would be a father to David's son. And he shall be to me a son, it says. The promise is that David will always have an heir, his son would build God's house. And this prophecy, as many prophecies, has a near and a far fulfillment. So on one hand, the application was to Solomon, David's son, who built the temple. But then there is the final fulfillment of the prophecy seen in David's greater son. That's why we have the tracing of the lineage of Jesus Christ through David. David's greater son, Jesus Christ, as Scripture says in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so then he goes on with the point. The point is to which of the angels did God ever say things like this and the answer is that God has never said anything like this to any of the angels and since he has specifically given Jesus Christ the name of his own son then Christ must be recognized as superior to the angels and the author of Hebrews does this by pointing out two Old Testament prophecies And the clear indication is this. Whom then should we turn to in times of need? Well, Jesus Christ. Who then should we pray to? Well, Jesus Christ. Who then should we worship as Lord? Well, Jesus Christ. Whom should we depend on for our salvation? Well, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. This is why he taught that no one, Jesus Christ himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation comes only through the Son of God. And to lower him or demote him down to the level of angels and to say, oh, well, Jesus is just an angel or he's like an angel who are simply messengers of God is blasphemy because he's not just a messenger of God. He is God. Number two. Point number two that the author drives home. Jesus is superior to angels because they worship him. Angels worship Jesus. So now the author makes the argument for Christ's superiority because he's worshiped by the angels. The point is made clear. The angels worship Jesus. Jesus does not worship the angels. However, again, There are some details here that we can't just overlook as we look at this passage of Scripture. So first we see that the author of Hebrews makes a reference to Jesus as the firstborn. That's what he says, the firstborn. Now in our minds, immediately, what do you think of when you think of firstborn? Your mind immediately goes to chronology. You think firstborn chronologically. That's what most people do because that's just how we think. So we think that someone is firstborn in time in a family. If you say this is my firstborn son, that means that that is your son who was firstborn chronologically. But this is a signifier of position, not time. And so it is like first in priority. The oldest son 
was usually, and I say usually because he was not always the heir of the father's estate, but the oldest son was usually the heir of the father's estate. Anyways, as such, he was in the position of privilege over his brothers. So Psalm 89, verse 27, when God says to David, I shall also make him my firstborn. This is God speaking to David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He was not saying that David was the firstborn son of Jesse because he wasn't. He was the youngest son of Jesse. However, he was the most prestigious son. And he was the superior son. Why? Because God chose David above his brothers. So if firstborn meant that Jesus was the first one created as Jehovah's Witness claim, then why would God command angels to worship Jesus? That would make absolutely no sense. To worship anyone less than God himself is an act of blasphemy. No one and nothing is worthy of worship except God. Are we to think that God commanded angels to worship a created man that was less than deity? That is insane it's preposterous they are commanded to worship not because he's firstborn in the sense of creation but because he is firstborn in the sense that he is superior to them and so therefore they are commanded to worship and not worship anyone else therefore he is worthy to be worshiped but there is another issue with these verses and it deals with the word that we read there in verse six it's this little word called again it says and again when he brings the firstborn into the world. Again. So the debate is. Should that word be in front of the sentence. Where it's at. And therefore it makes what follows a quotation. From a passage of scripture. Giving proof for Christ being superior to the angels. Or should that word. Again be connected with the word. With the verb brings. So it would read like this. When he again brings. This is how the new American standard bible puts it. If it is connected with the word brings, it's not connected with Christ's first coming, but it's connected with his second coming. And there are some <clears throat> scholars that argue the second view, but the majority are in favor of the first view. Now, you say, well, why do you bring all that up? That just makes my head hurt. And it made mine hurt too when I was studying it. But um, I bring it up for this reason. That word again is not a major issue. You know why it's not a major issue? Because angels worshipped him when he was on the earth the first time. And guess what? Angels will worship him when he comes again. Why? Because Jesus is superior to the angels. He is God. And the main thrust of verse 7 is that angels belong to Jesus. Look at what it says. His angels because they are his angels they obey his commands and they are his servants he is not their servants they are created to serve him and jesus was not even created therefore he is superior to them and they serve him furthermore there are two descriptive words given here and speaking of the service of angels do you see it there's these two words it speaks of wind and fire which speaks of the fact that the angels are transitory in their service. But Christ is eternal. He's the sovereign, as we will see in verse 8. The point being, Jesus is superior to the angels because angels both worship and serve Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ entered into the world as a man to save man. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and conquered death forever. He will one day return and take us home to, to live with him and be with him forever in heaven. Angels didn't do this. Angels didn't save us. Angels don't die for us. Angels could not make atonement for our sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can make atonement for our sin. Therefore, our worship goes only to Jesus. That means we sing songs to Jesus. That means we pray to Jesus. That means we bow to Jesus. Because there's nothing else that should even 
even compare or steal away from the affection that we have for worshiping Jesus Christ. When we gather on a Sunday morning, we gather together to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, to sing about what Jesus has done, to glorify what he's done in our lives. We don't gather here to talk about angels or to talk about anything else other than the one thing that deserves all of our affection and all of what we are, and that is Jesus Christ. Number three, Jesus is superior to angels because of his divine sovereignty. There's a contrast here between the angels and the Son. This contrast is to point out that Christ is superior because of his divine sovereignty. The author again quotes another psalm. This time he quotes Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which is an exaltation of Christ's sovereignty. This is what it says. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's the exact psalm he quotes. In this quotation, there's a clear reference to the divinity of Jesus. Well, the claim is that the Son is God. This is the point. No, oh, that was interesting. This is a point that the author is, is making. Jesus reigns forever and ever. The rule of Jesus has distinguishing characteristics. That there is a love for righteousness and a hatred for wickedness. These same characteristics are marked out by Jesus' earthly ministry. And they will be a mark of his coming ministry as well in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. The author of Hebrews references back to the Old Testament, and he does a few things for us when he does that. He referenced to this particular passage, Psalm 45, and it's making it clear that only Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and the Son of God can possibly fulfill an eternal reign because he is perfect in righteousness and holiness. Furthermore, we have a lesson on how to read the Old Testament. And that when we read the Old Testament, we should be reading the Old Testament through Christ-colored lenses. We should be looking for the promises of the Messiah and the, and the anticipation of the Messiah. The point, Jesus is God. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign majesty who sits on the throne of God. And we know this because he is addressed as God. His throne is eternal and his kingdom is ruled by righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is the divine sovereign ruler of the universe. He is God. And he sits on the throne and he has dominion over all the universe. This makes him superior to the angels. Furthermore, because of his love for righteousness and hatred for wickedness, he is uh, anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions, it says. There is no equal to him. He's above angels. He's above prophets, priests, kings, believers, living or dead. He is above all. We look to Jesus alone for our righteousness. He alone makes us acceptable to God. He alone is our refuge and our hope. He is superior to angels because of his divine sovereignty. He rules over everything. Therefore, he is above angels. Fourthly, Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the unchanging Eternal creator of heaven and earth. He's the unchanging eternal creator of heaven and earth. This quotation comes from Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27. The psalmist at this point has gone through some trials. He describes them in the first part of this psalm in Psalm 102. He feels as if he is about to be taken away. He's lamenting. He's the decaying nature of life. 
He's talking about weaknesses and failures of all created things, especially human nature. He writes his days will pass away like smoke. He says, my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is, stri is stricken down like grass, and like grass has withered. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I lie awake at night. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse word. I eat ashes like their bread and I mingle tears with my drink. That sounds real encouraging, doesn't it? Sounds like fun times for the psalmist. And here's the thing. That psalm, Psalm 102, the beginning of that psalm is not unlike anything that we might hear today. Our lives pass away like smoke. Our bones give way. I know that. I experience a little bit of that right now. Every single one of us must reckon with the fact that death looms at our door. It awaits us even as we live. We wither away like grass. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. That's not where this quote comes from. It doesn't come from the beginning of the psalm. It comes from the second half of the psalm. But see, the psalmist lifts up his eyes to heaven and he finds hope in his weakness and desperation. He considers that God is the eternal and unchangeable creator of heaven and earth. Even though heaven and earth will perish, God remains. Like someone who takes their old clothes and throws them out. God will throw out the universe, but he will remain the same. He will not change. He never comes to an end. And what is crazy about this, as the author of Hebrews quotes this song from Psalm chapter 102. What is insane about this is that everyone would have understood that the verses that he's describing... As he talks, as he brings this quote from Psalm 102, everyone would have understood that they're describing Almighty God. And the author of Hebrews is applying them to Jesus Christ. And he's saying it's spoken by God to Jesus. God is addressing Jesus as Lord. It is wild to think that the author of Hebrews and the first Christians in Scripture, without hesitation, transferred to Jesus the things the Old Testament said about God. Furthermore, it helps with understanding both halves of the psalm when we consider it in light of the New Testament. The first part of the psalm of Psalm 102 is the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. He's afflicted. He's pouring out his lament before the Father. It is his voice as he looks to the cross in anguish and, and, and all the things that the cross holds. Jesus in his humanity knew what it was like to die young, to face affliction, to suffer and be despised by men, to be abandoned by his closest friends. Jesus knew what it was like to be crucified in shame and to die a cursed death he knew it all because he experienced it but the second part of the psalm is heaven's response to the crucifixion of the savior yet as a man he was cursed and rejected and died on the cross but as a resurrected and exalted son god says to him but you O lord are enthroned forever the world has crucified you, and I have enthroned you. The world will perish, but you will remain forever. You are the same forever, and you will have no end. This is not some nice little theological statement that Jesus is superior to the angels. It was and is a source of great comfort in the midst of trials for us today because the same comforter and creator who is the eternal God of the universe who sustains the psalmist as he wrote the psalm in the midst of troubles would also sustain them and he also sustains us in the midst of our trials and our troubles and our tribulation and our heartache and our pain he is our sustainer he is the eternal creator Jesus Christ and he is the same today yesterday and forever so even if we suffer and go through pain and hurt and heartache, even if we were to lose our life when we are young, he is our refuge. He is unchanging.
This is why he is superior to the angels. Fifthly, and lastly, our last point. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is seated at God's right hand. And this is vital. It is introduced to us with a rhetorical question, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And of course, the answer is none. This quote comes from Psalm 110, which is the most cited psalm in the entire New Testament. Jesus used these same verses to stir up the Pharisees when he asked them this, whose son is the Messiah? And the Pharisees correctly answered Jesus when he asked them the question. They said, the son of David. And then Jesus asked them then, uh, asked them this, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And he quoted this exact same verse to them. And he asked the question, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they didn't have an answer. As we looked at last week, the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father affirms his authority and lordship. It does not indicate that he is inactive in creation, but rather that he is attentively concerned with the affairs of his people. Also, no angel has ever been invited to sit at the right hand of God because no angel has ever deserved such acclamation and exaltation. Christ alone has that position of love and joy and honor and dignity and triumph and victory and rule and authority and power and sovereignty and responsibility and duty and justice and judgment. No created being could occupy the right hand of the Father. In the scripture, we see men encountering angels and falling down before angels, but we do not see angels accepting worship. But Jesus did accept worship when he was on earth. So here's the question. If Jesus accepts worship while on earth and he is now seated on the throne of God, how much more should we worship him now? It is blasphemous to say that Jesus is a created being and then worship him as a created being. That's blasphemy. Because nothing created is ever worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. This is why as followers of Christ, we worship Christ because he is God. And it is equally blasphemous for a church to allow anything and anyone to detract from or vie for the worship that only Christ deserves. It's blasphemous. It's blasphemous for a church to, to try to find ways or, or think that, well, this, this song or this sermon or this whatever, it only, it only detracts a little bit from worship. If it detracts at all from the worship of Christ, if it takes our attention at all from who Christ is, it's blasphemous. If, if our mind wanders off somewhere else because of something done in here, and instead of worshiping who Christ is, it's wrong, it's blasphemous, because He is the only one that's worthy of our worship. Yet on Sunday morning, all across America today, I guarantee you that there will be people that will exalt some sort of idol other than Jesus Christ, who is the only one worthy of worship. Even something as great as an angel is not to receive our worship as verse 14 makes it clear that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So to mix up Jesus for an angel is to make the Lord equal with his servants. We have many descriptions in scripture of angels and it proves that angels are powerful beings. If you've read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know uh, all about angels. You know that angels rescued Lot and his family and then called down fire and brimstone from heaven. Because of David's sin, 
angel struck down 70,000 people in Israel. One angel took out 185,000 soldiers in one night from Sennacherib's army. When Daniel was in the den of lions, an angel shut the mouth of a lion so that he was kept safe. And an angel revealed prophecies to Daniel of the things that were yet to come. Or how about when Peter was in prison, an angel delivered him, and then he struck Herod Agrippa so that he was eaten by worms and died. Let's not assume that angels are not real or that there's some sort a mythical creature like they're a unicorn or something like that they are real let's also not assume that they are some wimpy little creatures that can't do anything because that's also not true the bible teaches that they that they that they are these creatures created by god to guard believers and we see evidence of this throughout scripture apparently they also look in on our church services according to first corinthians chapter 11 and though we can't see them because they are in the heavenly realms we're not looking up and seeing angels right now they are most likely angels probably right here right now looking in on this service and yet as great and powerful as they are they are still the servants to carry out the duties of the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father the point being church that we worship Christ alone because he's God. He is the only one worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. He alone, nothing else should steal away from that. We shouldn't allow anything to distract us from that. We shouldn't allow our minds to wander and be distracted and to think about this or that or, or whatever. But Christ alone. So you might be saying, well, that's nice. How do I apply that message to my life? Perhaps you think, uh, you know, I already knew that Christ was superior to angels. Duh, don't all Christians know that sort of thing? But there is some application. One of those applications deals with who Jesus is, and that's this. If anyone at any time tries to persuade you that Jesus is not fully God, you need to understand that that is heresy and it comes straight from Satan. Listen, there are billions of people worldwide believing a lie that Jesus was a great prophet or he was a great teacher, but he is not God. That's Islam. There's many people that think Jesus was a moral person and a good man, but they, did not, they don't know him as Savior and Lord. And those people are not saved. Lies about who Jesus is leads people to hell. If Jesus was not God in human flesh, then his death on the cross could never atone for our sins. If Jesus is anything other than God, you can't be saved. He is the only way for us to know God and the only way to have our sins forgiven. He is not one of many ways. He is not a partial way. He is not some way to God. He is the way to God. Therefore, we must hold tightly to the deity of Christ and never allow anyone at any time to tell us that Jesus is not God. Secondly, the second application deals with who you are. And you're probably not going to like this suggestion. I will just say right up front. But I'm going to make the suggestion anyway for you this morning. Because so often as Christians, we depend solely on what we hear the pastor preach or what we hear in Sunday school or whatever it might be. And we never give thought beyond what we heard. And we'll say things sometimes like, well, I don't agree with that or or something, but we don't know why we don't agree with it. We just heard that we're not supposed to like that, or we're not supposed to agree with that. In fact, many people who sit in church on Sunday, and they sit there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, have very little knowledge about theology and who God is. So here's my challenge. Go out and buy a book on systematic theology that will give you a foundation for the doctrines of our faith. You know, I think it's too bad that most Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses know more about their Bibles than the majority of evangelical Christians. It's true they know a perversion of the truth, but could you honestly refute them with your Bible if one came and knocked at your door? Could you refute them? 
If you were to engage with them, could you say, no, this is, this is why what you're saying is wrong because it's not, this is what the Bible says? Could you do that? And I understand that no one wants to seem to study doctrine and theology, especially in today's age. People just, I don't know why Christians have become lazy. And that is a problem. That's a problem with Christianity in America. You know, we're approaching the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, October 31st. And I'm thankful that those great reformers studied the word of God and they confronted the heresy of their day with God's word. And if we continue to elevate our experiences and our feelings over God's word, we're not going to grow in truth and knowledge, but we will continue to grow in ignorance just like we're doing. That's what churches are doing today. It's all about experience. It's all about how you feel. Our lives must be founded on the truth of God's word. We can go through the New Testament and read all kinds of practical doctrine. One of the reasons why I wanted us to go through the book of Hebrews is because it's filled with practical doctrine that helps us. And so I'm going to give you some recommendations this morning. Some books that you could possibly buy or get that will help you with a theological foundation of why we believe what we believe. And I'm going to challenge you to buy at least one book and read it. So I will start with the easiest book I know that could give you a solid foundation for starters. You can read this book. It's called Everyone's a Theologian, An Introduction to Systematic Theology by R.C. Sproul. It's easy. Won't take any time to read. And it's just basic stuff. Of why we believe what we believe. I'm going to give you some more. You can pick that book up for about 13 bucks. You can ask me for a list later. You can say, hey, Pastor, what was that one book? But let me talk about some more. For a heavier read, more, more details, I would recommend this book. It's just called Systematic Theology. And it's by Lewis Burkhoff. Systematic Theology. You can ask me later how to spell that name. There's also a Systematic Theology book written by Wayne Gruden. It's okay to, to, to read that one. It's got some practical practicality in it. For something a little more contemporary, you could go with The Christian Faith by Michael Horton. Finally, I would recommend this, Contours of Christian Theology. It's put out by InterVarsity Press. It's expensive. The whole thing will set you back about 180 bucks. But you will have volumes covering the church, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of humanity, the Holy Spirit, the person of Christ, the providence of God, the revelation of God, and the work of Christ. Now, if those are not enough and you say, well, I'm, I'm really getting into this theology stuff. I really want to go deeper. I would recommend the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin or the Institutes of Eclectic, of Eclectic Theology by Francis Turretin, or Systematic Theology by Charles Hodge, or Outlines of Theology by A.A. Hodge, or Abstracts of Systematic Theology by James Boyce. All great books. And I say, Pastor, why would you recommend all these books on theology? Well, I wouldn't recommend going out and buying them all. That's probably not a good idea. But I would recommend you buy one. Start reading it. And here's why. I have found that most Christians do not understand why they believe what they believe. They say they're a Christian. They perhaps prayed a prayer and they say, well, I received Jesus into my life. And that's it. It's where it stops. I've counseled countless Christians, either in marriage counseling or whatever, that that's where they're at. They prayed a prayer once and they said, well, I'm saved. And I don't know whether they are or not, but that's all they're trusting in. And theology is not about you getting some great head knowledge so that you can go out and argue with people or that so you can set the pastor straight. And I don't recommend theology books because my master's degree is in theology. I do love theology, yes. That's not why I recommend it. It's because the more we know about God, the more godly we become. And I want our church to be the most godly group of people 
that you could be sitting around with on a Sunday morning. In other words, we study theology to know even more about how God does things. And in my opinion, there's nothing worse than a bunch of Christians who can sit around and, and they talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, we talk about football and this or that. You know, everybody's got an opinion on, on whether people should be kneeling or not in the NFL. Everybody's got an opinion on that. Everybody. Yet so often the same Christians know nothing about the Bible. If, if I were to give you some heresy, you wouldn't even know it was heresy. But you, boy, you know that you shouldn't kneel during the national anthem. What is wrong with us? We call ourselves Christian and we care more about everything else than we do about Christ. We're called to be Christians. We should know our scripture. We should know our Bible. We should know why something is wrong. Why this is heresy. Why this isn't heresy. I watched some pastor spout off about some theological premise for 15 or 20 minutes. And he had no clue what he was talking about. And he's one, in one of the biggest or maybe the biggest Southern Baptist church in the United States of America. And he had no clue what he was talking about. That's a problem. And that's where most Christians are. So I say, we should be able to sit around and have a theological discussion. We should sit around and talk about our Bible. We should be able to sit around and I should be able to talk to you about Scripture. You know, I'm not meaning to pick on my brother Bill Sexton over here, but the other day he was here and he and I were chatting and his wife said, are you guys done yet? Because we were talking Bible, you know? She's like, you guys can talk this stuff all day. And that's, that's okay. That's what we need to be able to do. And so I just challenge you this morning, walk out of here knowing this morning that Jesus is fully God. And if you have not surrendered to him, then do so today. And walk out of here making the decision that you will get a book on theology and you'll read it this morning. Or you'll read it today or you'll start reading it next week or whatever it might be. But walk out of here with those two things. Jesus is God. And I'm going to find something and I'm going to get grounded. And if you, it confuses you, then we can come and talk. I'd love to sit, man. I love to talk theology. Come and talk. I don't have all the answers, trust me. Sometimes I think I do. It gets me in trouble. But come and talk. That's what we should be doing. And if you don't know Christ as Lord this morning, here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to stand down front. I challenge you this morning. To receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you want to pray, maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I, I don't know my Bible and I, I just want to pray that I would do some of these things you recommended. I'd be glad to pray with you. However the Lord's spoken to you this morning, if you need to respond, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk with you this morning. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer this morning. Father.